0: Well, 12 days from now, music fans from around the world will commemorate the uh, one-year anniversary of the death of uh, pop star Prince. And if you remember last year when his uh, death, which was suddenly happened, um, to me it was surprising just what kind of reach he had around the world. I mean, there were people that were mourning in in New York City, in London, and in Tokyo, and I remember... Uh, that night uh, when he had died, how people uh, just flooded Minneapolis, especially First Avenue, the the club that he really put on the map. And so many people crowded in into First Avenue, listened to music from Prince and dancing and grieving, and then more people just in Minneapolis. It was just a huge mob, shoulder to shoulder, as people just sang and danced. And I knew a couple of people that were down there. They said, Craig, it was unbelievable, it was nothing like you've ever seen before. And just shoulder to shoulder, you could barely move. And and, and yet, uh, Prince had captured so many people. And when we look at the story of Jesus in this triumphal entry, as he enters in the city of Jerusalem, it's very similar. Uh, Jerusalem was a a city of 50,000 people in the day of Jesus. But during Passover week, which is this week traditionally, uh, when it comes to Easter, and Jesus comes into Jerusalem... But half a million people, scholars believed, would flood into the city, shoulder to shoulder of people, as they celebrated, as they commemorated this Passover tradition that was so dear to the Jewish people where God liberated them from Egypt. And this was an annual deal. And no matter how far away you lived, you would make the trek. It may take you four or five days as a family, but you would come into the city of Jerusalem to commemorate what God had done. And we pick up that story in Mark chapter 11, this triumphal entry of Jesus coming in to this packed city of Jerusalem. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to that. Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. And Mark is John Mark, and he wrote this gospel. He wasn't a disciple of Jesus at all. In fact, uh, this is uh, commonly referred to as Peter's gospel because Mark and Peter were really close friends. and sort of, uh, I sort of envision you know, Peter kind of sitting over there and then and John Mark dicta- dictating all the stories about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. I'll be reading from New Living Translation, and you can follow along with the slides or our teaching notes or perhaps you have a Bible app. Let me pray for us this morning. God in heaven, we come to this story, this remarkable historic story of Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem in the same way he comes to us. How do we receive him? What's our response to the entry of Jesus into our lives, into our homes, into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods? How do we receive him? God, I pray that you'd you speak through me in this sermon, that you would touch the hearts and minds of people here. And Lord, what a, what a privilege it is for me to be able to be here as your spokesperson. And I pray that you anoint these words, anoint this sermon. And God, you know where everybody's at in their spiritual journeys. I pray that they would have a word, that they would have a picture, a thought, um, something that would encourage them to take a step forward in their faith in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Everybody said... Amen. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they had just left Jericho. It was about an 18-mile walk as they made their way to Jerusalem. They came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them and said, Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. That's a donkey's colt. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say the Lord needs it and we return soon. Isn't that kind of an interesting statement? It's like seeing, you know, like a Harley or perhaps a, nice, a really nice mountain bike that's not locked up and you just, you know, you just walk over there and you just get on top of it and, and pretty soon the owner comes over, like, what are you doing? You just say, well, the Lord sent me. I'm just going to, I'll bring it back sometime. Try that sometime, see what happens as you're in jail. All right. The two disciples left and found the colt, standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders had demanded, what are you doing untying the colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. And that's a big deal. The symbolism is very important. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Many in the crowd—you may want to underline that phrase—many in the crowd. This is no small gathering, very much like Minneapolis— throngs of people that are right there in Jerusalem. Spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches, like perhaps these. They had cut in the fields, and Jesus was in the center of the procession. The people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in highest heaven. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple after looking around carefully at everything he left because it was late. Probably exhausted after that, that long walk of 18 miles. It's late in the day. But the fact of Jesus uh, riding in on this donkey's colt would have uh, been something that would have captured the attention of the people there. This was something that would not, not have like, glossed over in, in terms of, of what this meant. This was fulfilling a great prophecy— in Zechariah chapter 9 verses 9 through 10 if you have a bible turn to that you can see the verses up on the slide as well Zechariah chapter 9 verses 9 through 10 this is no small stuff this is these aren't like just trite verses from the old testament these were words they clutched onto the Jewish people in the day of Jesus they clutched onto these words rejoice o people of Zion shout in triumph o people of Jerusalem Look, your king king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble riding on a a donkey. Riding on a donkey's colt. A colt that had never been ridden before. Pure and innocent, just like Jesus. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle. And your king will bring peace to the nations. Just like, in a way, how we hold on to the words of the constitution of freedom and speech. We hold on to that, especially in this day and age. Freedom of speech is everything to us. We hang on to those words in a very similar way, uh, no, in no way smaller, the Jewish people in the day of Jesus would have hung on to Zechariah chapter 9. They were waiting for their coming king. They've been clutching on to those words for centuries. I mean, their their father, great-grandfather, all the way back, you know, trace the family tree, they clutched on to Zechariah chapter 9. This is no small passage. So when Jesus comes in on this donkey's colt, they're like, this is it. This is it. And of course, they would have laid their garments down. And of course, thousands would have come in shoulder to shoulder, seeing this king. The thing is the kind of king and the kind of kingdom that Jesus was bringing in was much different. In your teaching notes, you can fill this in, is that Jesus came to bring a different kind of kingdom. Because the Jewish people wanted to get underneath, away from the boot of the Roman Empire. They were being stomped on. Their lives were being destroyed. People were being killed, and they were looking for this revenge, this king that would actually deliver them. And yet, Jesus brings a different kind of kingdom because he's a different kind of king. And it's a different kind of kingdom, and it's one characterized by humility and not exaltation. That's the next fill in the blank in your teaching notes. Characterized by humility and not exaltation. He rode on the back of a donkey's colt. And, and this, is some, this is an animal that you wouldn't expect a king to ride in on. Okay? Okay? This is, some, this is not the kind, of anim, this is the kind of animal that poor people would ride on or people who are marginalized. You know, it, it'd be like the, the president or maybe a, a king of a nation instead of riding in a, in a really nice limousine or a, perhaps a really nice Escalade is, is coming in like on a 1985 Ford Escort or, or something like that. Some kind of car like that. You wouldn't expect that. And yet we see Jesus coming in on this donkey's colt because he's a different kind of king. And his kingdom is going to be characterized by humility, not exaltation. Not too long before this, in a very telling scene, James and John, their mother, because these guys are too chicken, they get mom to go talk to Jesus. And, and, and the mom asked Jesus, you know, uh, my boys, I, I want them to be in your kingdom. I want them to see your right and your left hand. And Jesus says, no, that's not up to me, but my kingdom is in about, it's not about power. In fact, he goes on later to say, it's about being a servant of many. And Jesus said, "I, I came to serve. So my kingdom is going to be marked and characterized by humility where we actually serve others. Those are rare words from any kind of king. In fact, if you compare Jesus to the king at that time, which had been the Roman emperor, Caesar Tiberius. Caesar Tiberius was the son of Caesar Augustus. Everybody knows, us, everybody knows the, the, the phrase in Luke chapter 2. Um, in that day, uh, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. So Caesar Augustus, this is his son Tiberius, who is the king at that time. And, and his kingdom, and the kind of king that Tiberius is, it was very much different from Jesus. He was a, a king that sought exaltation. In fact, would have his image on coins like this. That's Tiberius right there. You can see on that backside, he's sitting on a throne. He's holding like a a weapon, and he's got something else in his left hand. It's to show royalty, but it's also to show exaltation. And you'd have those coins in your pocket as a way to pay homage to uh, Caesar Tiberius. Also, you would, if you went to the marketplace, you would have to bow down before a statue like this of Caesar Tiberius. Not all the cities had this, but some of the cities did, that if you wanted to go into the Agora, to the marketplace, you would actually have to bow down and give a a worship offering to Caesar. Because not only was he king, but also he was God on earth. And you would have to declare that he is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, before you're allowed to perhaps go into the marketplace to sell or maybe uh, buy uh, items. So that kingdom is a lot different. So for us, as followers of Jesus, we are invited into living out a life of humility. And boy, is that hard. Am I the only one in the room where that's hard? That is really hard. Because we want to impress others, don't we? We want others to think very highly of us. I made dinner for a family from this church on Friday night. I'm not, not, not a cook at all. I'm a very bad cook. But I'm learning. I'm learning how to cook, and I'm, I'm exploring this, this world, world of culinary whatever, and I'm enjoying it because I typically uh, lean on pizza rolls and roast beef sandwiches with provolone and, and chips and top potato uh, dip. That's kind of my meal right there. But anyways, I, so I made this meatloaf. A friend of mine gave me the recipe, the special sauce, and I was nervous putting that together. I, I didn't even, I've never made meatloaf before in my life. I'm like trying to shape them. How do you shape them? I was like, is this like a hamburger or something? And 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 then the, the sauce was this mix of ketchup, brown sugar, and mustard, and which was really neat. And I put that on the on the meatloaf, and I you know I timed it 45 minutes at 350 degrees. And then there's green beans, there's potatoes, there's bread, so all these things. And I'm not very good at multitasking. And the family enters in. They got three young kids of the age of under the age of six. I have two Springer Spaniels in the house, and I'm cooking. <laughs> That's always a risky enterprise, anyways. But throwing all that mix. So, and I wanted it to go so well. I wanted it to be a perfect meal, like they would walk away. And, and I kind of reflected on it later that night. I was like, why, why was I so like, like, you know, into it and, and so tense? Because I wanted to impress them. We all do. We want to be exalted. We, think pe- we want people to think highly of us. And later on in the evening, things didn't go the best. And the meal was great, but but, uh, later on, my Springer Spaniel, the female, she has a tendency whenever she meets somebody new, she tends to go number one in the the house on the spot. It's like a reflex. But when they came in the house, she didn't do that. I was like, wow, God, God answered my prayer. She's been healed. After our last series, I've been praying for my dog, Macy, not to do that to the visitors anymore. And she's healed. But then, like, a little bit later, before the meal, uh, she goes over to uh, the, the dad and pees right on his foot. <laughs> oh, man. I was like, oh. So he takes his socks off. They're like, it's okay, it's okay. I just felt horrible. I'm like, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some of my socks. He's like, no, I'll go barefoot. <laughs> well, then, and then... Later on, you know, I'm keeping my eye on the food, trying to do conversation, and, and then I get to uh, the, the um, uh, bake-and-serve, right? Bake-and-serve uh, uh, bread. And I was cutting, cutting the bread before I put it in the oven, and as I was cutting, I was talking with them, and it wasn't paying attention, and I sliced my finger. And immediately I put it by my by back. <laughs> I was like, I don't want them to see this. I want them to be impressed, of course. Deep down, that's what we want. And then, you know, then I was, I was like, "This is bleeding really bad." And then I just kind of kept talking. She they couldn't really see me, so I grabbed a napkin, kind of wrapped it up, ho- hoping it would clot it. And then I had kind of down here, and I thought it was good. So I took the napkin off, in my pocket, and then I kept cutting. and I noticed oh, that blood is right there. That wouldn't be a good mix of my blood on that bread. So I went to the bathroom, and then I reflected later that night. And it was a great time, great conversation. We had so much fun. But I was like, why, why do we have this desire that we want things to go perfect? And, and for me, it was like this reminder, kind of an embarrassing way, like, you know, I'm, I should have been there to serve them and, and have them just have a really good experience. And yet, I want it to be perfect because we want to impress people. And yet, Jesus says, my kingdom is characterized by humility. By humility. Well, next... It's a different kind of kingdom. And it's also a kingdom that's characterized by peace and not violence. And, and Tiberius was very, very different from some of the Caesars. He was very cruel. I mean, a lot of them were cruel. Augustus wasn't as cruel as uh, his son Tiberius. And Tiberius was very cruel. And there's many stories about Tiberius and the sort of uh, evil that he brought about. And a lot of the cities that were uh, operated and ruled by Rome— um, a lot of the soldiers had spears and swords. And if anybody stood out of line, they would immediately uh, kill them or harm them. Because Tiberius wanted, wanted people to know that my, my empire, me being king, is violent. You better not step out of line at all. Otherwise, you're going to be killed. So his kingdom and his reign was known as a reign of violence. He did not hesitate, and his soldiers were everywhere. It's kind of like ISIS today. I mean, ISIS is just everywhere, and the threat of violence is out there. In a similar way for Tiberius, that's the way his kingdom was like. That people were very, very afraid, and they didn't know when it was going to happen. And sometimes you could just be a model citizen, a good moral person, and for some reason, if, if Tiberius decided he wanted you killed and your family in that neighborhood, they would do exactly that. It was a kingdom of violence. And yet Jesus comes, he comes to bring peace. It's exactly what Zechariah chapter 9 said, is that this king is going to bring peace. And the kind of peace that Jesus came to bring was, in the Hebrew, shalom. And it it wasn't necessarily an absence of conflict. It it could mean that. But shalom was actually a way of living. Shalom meant that you were in right relationship with God. You were in right relationship with yourself you're in right relationship with others, your neighbor, and you're in right relationship with the created world. And that's what Jesus came on this Palm Sunday, in this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, was to help people live in shalom. Because that was God's desire. That was his plan from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, is that people would actually live shalom, to live in peace and live in harmony. And he sought to bring that. He's not to bring peace and not violence. And we remember the story when Jesus is uh, being arrested, and one of the soldiers, Roman, Roman soldiers, Malchus, comes towards Jesus, and Peter immediately grabs Malchus' sword and cuts off his ear. And then Jesus immediately heals Malchus' ear. It's just a symbol of a kind of king and kingdom that he was about. So different from Tiberius. He came to bring peace. He came to help people be in right relationship with God, with self, with others in the created world. And instead of a sword or a spear, Jesus brings a different kind of weapon. And Paul captures it so beautifully in 1 Corinthians. It's called the weapons of goodness. Weapons of goodness. That's the kind of weapon that Jesus brings for us, is goodness. And as we... um, as we exercise that and share that in our relationships and our lives. Again, very opposite to Tiberius, And finally, different kind of kingdom. And this one we would characterize by love and not by hate. And as king, Jesus came to show the world true love. A love that no one has seen. Where he actually lays his life down. And as we enter into this Passion Week, this Holy Week, we come to Good Friday to consider that. That this king actually laid down his life for others, for people. Something a king would never do. This is a different kind of king, and this is a different kind of kingdom. Tiberius, on the other hand, was all about hate. And that hate was expressed in a variety of ways. And the Roman historian Tacitus describes the kind of uh, rule and reign of Tiberius, this reign of hatred. He's, he writes this. It's in the first century. Executions were a stimulus to his fury, to his hatred. He ordered the death of all who were lying in prison under the accusation of complicity with this rival, this rival of Tiberius that tried to organize a coup and take over Tiberius' kingdom. Well, Tiberius caught it in time, and he had them put in prison— And he killed them. And Tacitus writes this, There they laid, singly or in heaps, the unnumbered dead of every age and sex, women and children, the illustrious and the obscure. Kingsfolk and friends were not allowed to be near them, to weep over them, or even to gaze on them at all. Tacitus talks about how the families couldn't even go see them. That's how, how much hatred Tiberius had. Spies were sent around them, the family members who noted the sorrow of each mourner and followed the rotting corpses till they dragged them to the Tiber where, floating or driven on the bank, no one dared to burn or torch them. There couldn't be a starker contrast between this king, Tiberius, and Jesus because Jesus was love in the flesh. And as we come into this Holy Week, I want to encourage you to really... Set aside distractions, set aside other things, and really simplify your life this week. And think about and gaze upon the love of Jesus. There is no greater love than we see in Jesus, laying his his life down for you and I, so that you and I could then make peace with God. As Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the sons and daughters of God that we can live in shalom and be in right relationship with God and with self and with others in the created world. N.T. Wright, a great scholar who's influenced me in a number of ways, he retells the following story about Archbishop in England who was hearing uh, a confession of sins of these three teenagers who were very hardened. And last week I talked about the four different kinds of of soils. If you missed last week, i encourage you to listen online, the parable of the Sawyer, sower. And, and one of the, the first soil is a hardened or dry soul. And that's very much what these teenagers were like. They had hardened souls, very, very cynical and jaded. And all three boys were trying to make a joke out of it as they were confessing their sins to this archbishop. So they met with the archbishop and confessed to a long list of ridiculous and grievous sins that, that, that they had not committed. It was all a joke. And the archbishop could tell that, that even though this, there was a bad practical joke here, he played along with the first two, and they, those two ran out of church laughing. But then he listened to the third teenager very carefully. And before that teenager got away, he told the young man, okay, you've confessed these sins. And the teenager's laughing in his face. You've confessed these sins. Now I want you to do something to show your repentance I want you to walk to the far end of the church and I want you to look up the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. And I want you to look at his face and say this, you did all that for me and I don't care that much. I want you to do it three times. And the boy nonchalantly walks over, looks up the front and the picture of Jesus is and said, you did all that for me and I don't care that much. Then he said it again. And then it came to the third time, but he couldn't say it. Because he broke down in tears. And the archbishop telling the story said, the reason I know that story is that I was, I was there with that young man. And there's something about the cross. There's something about the cross that hits us so deep and so profound, right to our soul, that we understand and come to grips with this great love of Jesus Jesus was a different kind of king, and he came to bring a different kind of kingdom. And the last note in your teaching notes is this, is that Jesus came not to meet your expectations, but your needs. Because when we come to the scene at the cross, at Calvary, at Golgotha, the thousands of people that were there as he entered the city, were gone. Unlike Prince and all these thousands of people mourning his death that night, April 21st, is that we come to the cross and there's only a few people there. The Jewish people had left him. The leaders definitely left him. His family and friends and the disciples were all gone. Just a few people there at his death. And with his death, he came not to meet our expectations because those people left because they didn't meet his expectations. And what kind of expectations do we have of Jesus today? Is he a vending machine where if we do enough and and be a a good person, then he'll provide this for me? Or if I go to church enough or I read the Bible enough, then then that'll that'll cause Jesus then really to, to help me in my life. The question for you is, is, do you see Jesus sort of as a utility? Is he simply a tool to get what you want? So have your expectations met? Or are you surrendered to be willing to say, I want to be open to what Jesus wants to do in my life, how he wants to meet my needs? And as I close out this sermon, I'm going to pray in a moment, but I'd like you to do is just to bow your heads, close your eyes, and share with Jesus, this is one thing or two things I need this week. That I really need. That I, 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 I need you to really enter in my life. Okay, let's just take a minute of silence, and then after that I'll pray. Jesus, our needs are vast. And maybe some of us right now, we can't even wrap our, our brains around what we need. There's so many things in the way. So I pray that this week, for those that you would open their eyes, bring a light to what they need. And Lord, for some of us, it's, it's the need to accept forgiveness. That we're here this morning, and perhaps as a family member of uh, the kids who are singing, and we're in church and we can't believe we're in church. And we feel so low. We have guilt and shame that this runs through our veins. And we need forgiveness. We need to know that you gave your life so that we can begin again. That we don't have to be perfect and that you accept us where we're at right now, but you love us too much. Leave us there. Or God, for others of us, it's, it's, we come to this, this time of year and it sort of becomes routine and we, we lose the, the story. What we need is to enter into that story this week. So today, thinking about the events of the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, and thinking about tomorrow, and maybe asking the question on this day, at this hour, what was Jesus doing? He's being arrested. And then Tuesday, and then Wednesday, and Thursday. The last meal, the last supper with the disciples. And then coming to Friday and the crucifixion. And then coming to Holy Saturday, thinking about. Jesus is dead we don't know about Easter yet and then to come together next week to celebrate the greatest miracle of all the resurrection of our king and the ushering in of his kingdom, Jesus Christ in his name we pray, amen